Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Shalom, Fellowship. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful to see you. Shalom, everyone. It's just so nice to see your faces. Thank you for waving. <laughs> it's I can't tell you how much strength our fellowship brings us out here in Judea, how much strength it brings me. It's hard to explain. I just, the, it feels as like the emotional and spiritual forces are so strong and our weekly meetings are nothing less than just like a shield, um, a light <laughs> to banish the darkness. We're just so grateful. We're so fortunate to be learning together, to be praying together, to be living through these times together, to be connected through this land, through the Torah, through our tefillah, through our prayer, um, through Israel. And um, to me, this time of the week, it's the most meaningful time. It's the most encouraging time. Um, I think about the fellowship all week. I pray for so many people in our fellowship all week. Uh, I prepare for it. It's always in my consciousness. It quite literally shapes my life. It shapes my thoughts. And then I get feedback that, you know, the fellowship is helping others strengthen themselves, encourage themselves, shape their lives. And just how wonderful it is that our time together, starting our week off together, bringing the holiday, bringing Shabbat into our week, plugging into the pulse of Israel and allowing people to really kind of be inside with us at the Arugot farm, inside the experience of what it's like to be in Israel in these times. Um, what better thing could we be doing on Sundays than this fellowship? I can't think of anything. And so last week, I want to catch you all up. Last week, we celebrated Yom HaZikaron and Yom Ha'atzmaut, Israel's Memorial Day and Israel's Independence Day. And it's arguably the most intense time, the most emotional time in like one time frame. It's, you know, you just go from the pain and the sadness of remembering all of the victims of terror, all of the fallen soldiers. And, you know, it's, it's so raw and real. There's no one in Israel that doesn't know firsthand someone that's been killed in a terror attack a soldier that's fallen in war or in some sort of mission and the whole country feels it they feel it hard and then in the same time frame in one sundown we go into this celebration the just the, the newest holiday for the people of israel and the contrast is so great it's like from one day to the next it's just a roller coaster it's it's like spiritual and emotional whiplash it's like Wha-pow! and you just it's just you're a little bit like stunned and dizzied from it all and as we're celebrating Yom Ha'atzma'ut toward the end three innocent Jews were murdered this year not just murdered but they were murdered by an axe an axe and knife attack it's like it wasn't just murder it was like a lust for blood a spirit of evil that we just can't even wrap our minds around what are the twisted sick spirit that enters into the heart of man that would inspire someone to do that. And I just, you know, they'll never show this on the mainstream media. And I don't know if you can find this anywhere, really. But I was sent by a friend of mine, um, a little video of one of the three souls that was cut down. Just such a good man, a good Jew, bringing joy and happiness to the world in his bakery. And I, I just, I wanted to just show you this short video, just to kind of get like a little bit. So that's Yonatan Chavakuk, Shemikom Damo. Just someone walked into his store, just immediately, let's bring happiness to the world. You know, there's so many people that are just so bogged down by the troubles of this world, by the sadness of this world, by the tragedies of this world, by the evils of this world, by the confusion. And then there's just some simple Jews, just simple as like the highest level, that just have faith, that just look beyond the troubles, that want to make people smile, want to make people feel loved. It doesn't matter what they look like, where they come from. They walk into his store and he just wants to dance with them and make them smile. And it's like the best of us in Israel are often taken away from us so soon, too soon. 
And so with that, I just want to start a prayer together because sometimes we just got to crack open our hearts to really let our hearts open up. And so I just want to start together with a prayer. We're all here together now and sort of bring our hearts together. Hashem, we are all here for you. Our fellowship from around the world, our hearts are united. Our hearts are open and given to the families grieving now in Israel. 19 Jews have been killed in the last month for no other reason than being your chosen ones, for no other reason than being Jews. Hashem, allow us to feel the love we have for Israel and give us the strength to emerge from this darkness, emerge shining a light, shining your light. Let the families know in their hearts that we're praying for them, that so many people love them, support them, and lift them up. Give us more love than the enemy has hate. Give us more strength to be who we need to be. Give us the eyes to see what you want us to see in the light we need to shine your light forward. Hashem, bless every member of this fellowship. Bless their families and their loved ones. Guard them and protect them from any evil. Thank you for choosing us, putting that fire in our heart that has somehow like a magnet brought us together to travel this journey together, to walk this faith walk together. May we all dance together in the mountains of Judea, in the streets of Jerusalem. Amen. And so today's a special day. Today is Mother's Day. So happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. And I saw a cute cartoon and it had a father that says, don't worry, mom, I've brought in some backup to help while you take a vacation day on Mother's Day. And the picture, there's an entire team standing next to the father. It's like a nurse, a chef, a driver, a fairy godmother, a cleaner, an entertaining clown, a rabbi. Just like all of the things that the mother needs to do. So many roles and so many responsibilities. There's just no job harder in the world by far. And so I want to thank Tehillah for being such an incredible mom. And I want to thank all the mothers out there for raising up the next generation. And so I just want to introduce just an amazing teaching by our mother in residence, Tehillah here. You're absolutely going to love this one. She worked on it all day. And here it is for you right now. Hi, everyone. So here we are in this time between Yom Ha'atzmaut, Israel's Independence Day, and Jerusalem Day coming up in a few weeks. And in this perfect timing, of course, this week's Haftorah, the chapter from the prophets that we read after the Torah reading on this coming Shabbat is from Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah, chapter 32. Now in chapter 32, Jeremiah is sitting under arrest. So, you know, the, the king doesn't want him to speak his prophecy. They don't want to hear it anymore. And while the Babylonians are literally at the gates besieging Jerusalem, prophetically, Hashem tells Jeremiah that his cousin Hanamel is coming to sell him a field in Anatot. Because as we learn in this, coming week, in this coming week's Torah portion, it's the responsibility of a family member to redeem a piece of land if the owner falls into poverty and try to keep the land within the family. So that would be normal in any normal time, except for that right now, all of Judea is about to be destroyed. What would be the point of buying this land? So then indeed, Hanamel comes and says, hey, uh, could you buy my field? It's hard to exaggerate how ridiculous this is to buy real estate at such a time. Imagine me telling you about some great real estate in Ukraine. It's just it's just absurd. What could be more absurd than that? But Jeremiah understands prophetically that this action that he's supposed to do is from Hashem. So he doesn't just buy it. He makes a whole ceremonious process of it with all the legal fixings. He doesn't leave out any formality with all those signatures and the witnesses and the scroll. And Hanamel must be thinking, yeesh, my cousin is as crazy as they say he is. I mean, what could, this is the deal of a lifetime for him. And imagine this is not easy for Jeremiah. Just as an individual person, he knows that they're about to go into exile. We know that people are dying from hunger and illness in the city. This little bit of portable silver cash that he has, he could use just for basic necessities of life. And instead he's buying literally worthless real estate of all things. Finally, he finishes this whole ceremony and then he makes this beautiful prophetic declaration in verse 14. He says, so said the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these scrolls and put them into an earthen vessel so they remain for many years. For so says the Lord, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall be purchased again in this land. Oh, now we understand the point of all this craziness to symbolically act out that one day all of this will not seem so weird. Buying real estate 
buying land in Israel will be something of value. It's like they couldn't even envision this. It's so hard to imagine, but he's showing with his actions that this is the future redemption. That's beautiful, but shouldn't it just end there? Then comes this really strange continuation to the chapter. The crowd clears, the witnesses go, his you know, assistant Baruch Ben-Neria goes, and for the first time he's alone and doubt starts to creep in. Well, bear in mind, he's been through every manner of persecution. I mean, he's been held under arrest. He's been tortured, but he never backs down. But something about this, of all things, is too much. And your heart breaks when he screams out. In the English translation of verse 17, it says, Ho, O Lord God. But the Hebrew is like, is more uh, like touching. It's more heart-wrenching. It says, aha, Aleph, hey, hey, aha. The official translation of that would be something like, ah. And Jeremiah says, ah, I know, Hashem, that you're a God of loving kindness and nothing is hidden from you when you brought us out of Egypt to the land of milk and honey, but we didn't walk in your path. And now in 24, he says, everything you've proclaimed so far has come to pass. And now you're saying to me to buy a field for money and appoint witnesses, but the city is about to fall to the Babylonians. He says, I get it. We deserved this. We sinned. Everything that you promised would happen so far came true. And I've been able to tolerate. But at some point, I'm starting to feel ridiculous. And then Hashem answers him and says in verse 28, yes, it is true that Nebuchadnezzar is about to conquer Judea. And yes, it is because of the sins of Israel and Judah who did evil things like child sacrifice and placed abominations in the temple. But he goes on in 37, behold, I will gather them from all the lands where I've driven them with my anger and wrath and fury and I will restore them to this place and I will cause them to dwell safely and they'll be my people and I'll be their God and I will give them one heart and one way to fear me and it'll be good for them and their children. I will plant them in the land truly with all my heart and all my soul and the fields shall be bought in this land that you say is desolate without man or without beast. I think it's marvelous that this chapter comes out exactly around the time when we're thinking so much about Israel, the state of Israel, the ingathering of the exiles. This is coming right after Holocaust Remembrance Day and then the Memorial Day for the fallen soldiers and for the victims of terror and after Independence Day that we had last week and coming up in, the, in a couple of weeks on Jerusalem Day, it's time when we're taking stock. It's a time when we're contemplating what does it mean to be a people returning to our land? And I think in this chapter, Jeremiah, at least for me, is bringing up some important points. You know, we're meriting to live in a time where we've seen so many prophecies come to pass. We've seen with our own eyes the ingathering of exiles, the revival of the Hebrew language, awakening of so many from the nations who feel in their heart a calling to cast their lot with the God of Israel, but yet even with all of that, at least for me, it's still easy to fall into moments of doubt and despair because the problems still seem so insurmountable. We have terrorism, we have enemies, we have defamation of Israel, BDS, and maybe worst of all, internal strife, leadership that doesn't reflect the Torah values that we hold so dear, so much fighting within the Jewish people. When I read this prophecy, you know, the Talmud says that there were hundreds of thousands of prophets in Israel during the age of prophecy, but only a tiny fraction of the prophecies were written down in the Bible. And we know that that's because those are the prophecies that had relevance for generations. Like, you know, when Saul is looking for his donkeys, they say, oh, go to Samuel the prophet. He'll tell you where your donkeys are. There were prophets prophesizing all the time in those days about day-to-day -day things like finding your donkeys, but only those of eternal relevance, only those of eternal relevance were put into the Bible. Why didn't this chapter end when Jeremiah finished the purchase and says, oh Lord, you know, the Lord says that people will one day return to buy the land. Why do we need to hear the back channel dialogue between Jeremiah and Hashem about his internal issues and doubts? It seems relevant for the moment, not for the future. Jeremiah had a rough moment and Hashem comforts him. Why do we need to know this? Why does this matter? To me, this is teaching that prophecy, that this prophecy isn't just an accidental eavesdropping into a personal struggle that Jeremiah is going through and how Hashem helps him through it. It is in and of itself a prophecy teaching us that when we get to the breaking point of doubt and despair, that's also part of the unfolding. And look at what Jeremiah says when he cries out to Hashem. He says in verse 24, what you have proclaimed has, proclaimed has come to pass. And lo, you see it. And you have said to me, buy yourself the field, yet this city is given to the Chaldeans. Meaning he, like us, 
has seen with his own eyes prophecy coming to pass, but when it comes to the final part of the vision, it just seems too far-fetched. He just can't keep his faith strong. And this is not included in the Bible for no reason. Maybe it's an answer not only to Jeremiah and to his personal doubts, but also to our own saying, yes, there will be frustration. There will be a feeling that it's just impossible to finish this redemptive process. Don't be surprised. It's just as much a part of the plan. But here's a way to look at it. And Hashem reveals for us a glimpse of that future redemption. So now what does it reveal? How does Hashem restore Jeremiah's faith? If you look at it carefully, you can see that what he's explaining is that the redemption is going to be multi-layered with different stages. Because it's really counterintuitive the way Hashem describes the future redemption. First, Hashem says, yes, it's going to be an exile. And then in verse 37, he says, I will gather them from the lands and they will dwell safely. Meaning first, there'll be a physical ingathering of the exiles. The nations, you know, they won't, the Jews won't be at the mercy of the nations anymore. They'll have a shelter. Now, if I was going to envision redemption, I'd say, you know, first, we'll all return to Hashem. We'll all, you know, uh, be repentant. And then Hashem will reward us by bringing us back to our land. But the narrating here is a, the, na the narrative here is a totally different thing. It's saying, I will bring you back. That's verse 37. And only in 38, it says, then they will be my people and I will be their God and they'll have one heart. It's the exact opposite of what you would imagine. You'd imagine people coming together with one heart, having unity and one accord, and then returning to Hashem and then being restored. It can't be a coincidence that the verses come in the opposite way. It says, first I'll return you, then you'll return to Hashem, and then you will have one heart. And it'll be a There'll be a repentance pro like process, and then there will be national unity. And only in 41, it says, and then I will plant them on this land truly with all my heart and all my soul. Meaning, if Hashem is only at 41 planting us on the land truly, what was happening on up until then? Well, what we understand is that they were in the land, but not truly in the land. And what does it mean to be in a land, but not truly? Is that not the perfect description of what we are going through right now, being in the land, but not yet truly in the land? Because we're here, we have a government, we have an army, but we can't even plant trees in Judea without being harassed. We can't build homes without international condemnation saying, no, you know, Jews can build here, but not there. Can you walk in your cities and feel safe from terrorism? So you're here. But we're not truly planted. So Hashem is saying, you're going to have doubts. But remember, returning to the land is not the end of the redemption process. It's the beginning. Don't expect things to work right away. There's a process that will happen in the land of returning to Hashem and of returning to one another in unity. And only after that will Hashem plant us in the land truly, as he says in verse 41, I will plant you truly in the land with all my heart and all my soul. And if you have any doubt that this is talking about our time, look at the last verse. Look at the final part. Only after all of that. It says, and then you will go to desolate places in the land. I'm in 44. It says, men will buy fields and inscribe deeds. Where? The verse is specific. It says, in the land of Benjamin, in the environs of Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, and in the Negev. So meaning we've returned to the land, but there are the places that it's going to be hard to buy, and one day you will be able to be there truly. And where are we struggling for land in Israel, if not in the environs of Jerusalem, in Benjamin, in Judah, and in the Negev? It doesn't say in the land of Dan where Tel Aviv is. It doesn't say in the land of Zebulun or Naphtali in the north. And those places truly aren't disputed right now. It mentions specifically the places that we're going to be struggling in. And it says one day you will be able to really be planted there. And I don't think it's a coincidence this Haftorah appears at this time. It's coming just in the nick of time to give us encouragement exactly when we need it the most. So I'll finish with verse 42 that says, For so says the Lord, as I have brought upon this people all of the great evil, so I will bring upon them all of the good that I speak. Meaning, as we come out of Yom HaShoah, and remember just how bad things can get, Hashem promises us that as bad as it ever was and ever will be, that is the equal measure of goodness that I will bring upon Israel. So may, us, may we merit to see this in our days. Have a beautiful week, everyone. Wow, Tehila, that's just absolutely amazing. I want to point something out here of what Tehila was saying because it's so wondrous. <laughs> it's just unbelievable. I mean, here we are now, 2,000 years of history. We're right at the finish line. We're back in the land of Israel. You're going to see challenges, Jeremiah says. Don't lose faith. There's going to be stages in the process. And then what does it say? The process is going to get stuck. You're going to have real challenges. Where? In Judea, 
what he called the lands of Benjamin, which could also be called Samaria, which is north of Jerusalem, and Judea and Samaria and the Negev. And if you follow the news in Israel today, where does Israel have the most challenges as far as security, settling the land, sovereignty over the land? Judea, Samaria, and the Negev. That's so outrageous. How would Jeremiah possibly know that? I mean, history could have unfolded in so many different ways. Maybe we would have troubles in the northern part of Israel, in the Golan. Maybe we'd have problems on the ocean where there's uh, ports. And maybe we'd have, I mean, who knows? No, Judea, Samaria, and the Negev. And that is exactly right now where Israel is literally just in a constant struggle. And it seems as though there's a mechanism that's set up that is, as Israel veers from the path in the book of Judges, Philistines are sent to steer us back onto the path of righteousness. And we're set up in a situation in Israel that as soon as our leadership starts veering off the path of righteousness, immediately, I mean, I think in 2021, there wasn't a single victim of terror. And in 19, in the last month, meaning Israel is being woken up a time and time again that we are struggling now. But Jeremiah says, yes, there's going to be struggles inheriting the land of Israel and the places where you're struggling now. Take strength in that because see that all of this is a part of the process and out of this darkness, light will come. And I think that that's exactly the message that somehow through Ruach HaKodesh, through divine inspiration, the modern holidays of Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaAtzma'ut were put right next to each other. And that was a bit of my message that I spoke on Yom HaAtzma'ut night. You know, it's like going from one to the other. There's like one moment in time where we say goodbye to Memorial Day and hello celebration into Yom HaAtzma'ut. And that time frame is like folding up all of Jewish history into one moment. And you think about our history we as a people were forged into being through suffering and tyranny in Egypt. That is how the people of Israel were born. We went down into Egypt as a family and we suffered this darkness and oppression. And then out of that, we were born a nation. And you think about, we know that those stories are prophecies. They are templates. They're structures in scripture and then structures in time that somehow the first redemption is a prophecy of how the final redemption is going to end. And you think about how the Jewish people lived before the state of Israel. We lived in Europe and we lived in Arab countries. And well, in Europe, we called them little shtetls, like Tehillah's great grandmother. We light her Shabbat candlesticks every Shabbat. She was born in a shtetl in Europe. What is shtetl? It's a little Jewish village outside of the city. And the Jews sort of kept to themselves in their little villages. And when you look at the way the Jews lived in Egypt, they came down to Egypt and they built the first Jewish shtetl in Goshen. And the shtetl in Goshen in Egypt became the first Jewish ghetto of slaves in Mitzrayim. And it was that dark womb of slavery that gave birth to Israel. But the parallels are so overwhelming that that's how the Jews lived right before the final redemption of Israel. And we say before every holiday, we say it every Shabbat, we say it every holiday, remember the exodus of Egypt. All of these holidays, as we're celebrating them, don't forget the beginning. And then as we celebrate our newest holiday, it's like Yom HaZikaron, remember, the day of remembering. Every holiday, we're called to remember the pain and sacrifice that it took for our freedom. It's like to remember that out of the darkness comes light. And, you know, every Passover Seder, we try to remember, and we're, we, we have all of these rituals and practices to see ourselves, as if we ourselves are coming out of Egypt. And sometimes we get the children, they're putting pillows on their backs and they leave the houses and walk around as if they're just on their way out. We eat bitter herbs and we taste it in salt water, but it's hard to feel the pain of suffering that we don't know. But on Yom HaZikaron, on Israel's Memorial Day, everyone knows that pain. And everyone also knows that the story of Egypt is 
a prophetic story. In Hebrew, we say avot siman labanim, that the actions and stories of our fathers are hints, maps, signs for their sons, and that somehow they're templates, they're mirrors of what future generations will experience. And the whole world watched the Jewish people, slaves in concentration camps, which already is so unheard of before. And then they watched their liberation and resurrection in the land of Israel, from slavery to redemption, from Egypt to the land of Israel, from Auschwitz to the land of Israel. It's so eerie. It's so undeniable. The parallels are so strong. You can't just stand in awe and wonder of it all, like something is going on. And Jewish history is somehow encoded in all the words and the stories of the Torah. And just Am Yisrael was saved. The oppressors were defeated, impossible odds. In Egypt, they were singing the song by the sea. And in 1948, we were singing Hatikva in Tel Aviv. And those two songs, they ring true today. Everyone knows those two songs, like unbelievable. But within that, there's a really deep message. And that's what I spoke about. Those ancient stories, um, when we celebrate our time in Israel, and we struggle through the darkness of the process of redemption. If you remember the story, after the Jewish people leave Israel, it took three days of freedom until we started to doubt. Three days. That's it. We had no water. And after three days, we started to doubt ourselves. We started to doubt our victory. I mean, I was like, maybe we should go back to Egypt. We started to doubt God. We asked, is God really with us? And the sages of Israel say, that is a prophetic story. Those three days represent three generations. After the liberation that the Jewish people will experience as they enter into the land of Israel and they have their own independence, beware what happens after the third generation. The third generation is the most dangerous of all. It is the time when doubts will start to creep in. And Moses, in case we didn't understand the prophetic code in the story, Moses says it very clearly to us in a direct warning right before we go into the land. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 25, here's what Moses says. When you shall beget children and children's children, you shall have, and you shall have remained long in the land, and you shall corrupt yourselves. So here's what he says. When you enter into the land, beware. You are going to go into the land. You're going to have children and your children are going to have children. Three generations, three days. Beware. It says, and you will get old in the land. Now that word doesn't just mean old. It means you're going to get used to it. It'll just be something that, you're, that you do now. It's nothing special about it anymore. And look at what happens as the Jewish people enter into the land of Israel. If you open up to the book of Judges in chapter 2, we go through Jewish history. Watch how prophecy unfolds. In chapter 2, it says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. So here's what it says. Joshua not only dies, but that entire generation of Joshua was gathered unto its forefathers. That means the people that entered into the land of Israel, the children that were born in Egypt, that survived the journey in the desert. When the last children survivors who made it out alive and somehow made it to the land of Israel, that next generation after the third generation forgot, became corrupt, lost the vision, veered from the path, and the fall began. And we know the book of Judges. That is exactly what happened. And then let's look at the next time. Israel receives a new type of independence. We know the story. There was a first king. 
We had a king, a united kingdom in the land of Israel, Saul. Saul was the first generation of kings. After Saul came David, David, the best king, the most beloved. Solomon, the third generation. After the third generation, Solomon's son, the kingdom split and the fall began. After three generations, once again, they just had King David. They had just experienced the kingdom. They had the temple. Everything was perfect. And after the third generation, Moses says, be careful. Well, we have another story in Jewish history of Israel's independence and liberty. The story of Hanukkah. We had the high priest, Matityahu HaKohen. He was the father of Judah the Maccabee. And after Judah, Simon the Maccabee. Simon, after Simon, finally became the leader of Israel. Three generations. And the living miracle of Hanukkah became a history that we commemorate. And the fall began. Now look what happens this week. We are right now in the 75th year of Israel's independence. On Yom Ha'atzmaut, we celebrated 74 years. We finished 74, and now we've entered into the 75th. We're now finishing the third generation. Those rising up in Israel today, the children that are alive today, the single and young women that are not married yet, they are the fourth generation in the land of Israel. And in our lifetime, in their lifetime, the child survivors, like in the times of Joshua, the child survivors of the Holocaust will be gathered unto their forefathers. And the children of today, when they get married, will not have any living memory of the Holocaust. It will be something they commemorate with a siren. Venoshantem ba'aretz. And you will be long in the land. You'll get used to living in the land. You'll start taking it for granted and you will get old in the land. What is prophecy, if not transcendent wisdom? Timeless truth. True 3,000 years ago and true in 2020. Every Warning in the Torah, every lesson of Jewish history is pointing to our generation right now. That is where we stand. The Bible is a story for the most important of reasons. It's a story to give us a context of where we are, where we come from, and where we're going. And right now, it's our task of passing all of recorded human history, all of biblical history onto the next generation so they know where they are because we are literally at the threshold now. You know, our grandparents, our parents, they saw unbridled evil and malevolence unleashed onto the world with a quest for global domination. And like a nightmare, they targeted and pinpointed and gathered and started annihilating the Jewish people. And when the evil Nazis, Mengele, had our children in his grips, he turned evil into an art. That generation saw it. They knew it. They experienced the truth. They encountered evil. And they knew as far away as they could get from that evil would be good. They didn't need a siren to remember the evil. And then somehow, in the darkest time the world ever knew, when all hope was lost in Yechezkel, Ezekiel saw in his final vision, mass graves of Jewish people, dry bones and ashes, and the Jewish people cry out, Yavshu atzmotenu v'avdatik vatenu, nigzarnu lanu, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, and we are doomed. In Hebrew, they cry out, Avdatik Vatenu. And then somehow, out of the womb of darkness, when their hope was lost, a flash of light came, like the beginning of the dawn, and Atikva started to be sung, Od lo Avdatik Vatenu. 
referencing back to that vision of Ezekiel saying, our hope is not yet lost. And the yellow star of our slavery transformed into the blue star of David for our freedom. I mean, so many generations we were praying, raise the flag of Israel and bring us back to our land. And then all of a sudden, the Jewish star, the star of King David was waving over the land of Israel, calling the people of Israel back. And then under one flag, under the star of our king, the people in Israel united. And in the most miraculous war, people don't appreciate the war in 1948. It was a greater miracle than the miracle of 1967. All of the freedom fighters of Israel, the Haganah, the Lehi, and the Etzel, there were only a few thousand fighters. The Palmach force, the fighting force of the Haganah, only had 300 fighters. They had almost no equipment. They had no uniforms. Only half the men in each of the units had guns. It's like from, they, we had an underground army, an, an underarmed army, it was like not an army at all. It was Holocaust survivors and Jewish refugees from Arab countries. No tanks, no real air force, no battle plan, and no chance. That's what we were up against. Five trained armies on every border. And the people couldn't even communicate because Hebrew wasn't really there yet. Hebrew didn't exist really yet. So I've been in many battles and it's complicated giving out orders. You know, you say, Moshe, you radio back to base. We need more ammunition. David, you go to the left. Give me, tell me info on what's happening on the right. I mean, it's like constant things are happening. In 1948, imagine what happened. Someone is giving out a command. He tries in Hebrew and he says, Moshe, you go radio back to base. David, you go to the right. And the man next to him says, I don't speak Hebrew. I speak Russian. Well, um, what did he say? And the guy next to him is saying, I don't speak Russian. What are you saying? What did he say? I speak Arabic. I'm from Morocco. What did he say? The guy next to him says, what are all of you talking about? I'm from Poland. I don't speak any of your languages. And it's like, no one speaks anyone's language. And we won that war. How do you win a war like that? That's insane. That's not possible. That's miraculous. That's unbelievable. From survivors in slaves with no common language, with no army and no battle plan, modern day Maccabees were like revealed in the land of Israel, reborn. And somehow Israel won our freedom. And then from the slavery of Egypt 3,000 some odd years ago, over the entire span of recorded human history, our generation made it back to the mountains of Judea, to the mountains of King David for the world to see, to marvel and witness the greatest story humanity has ever told. A story like no other. It's just hard to comprehend where we are and who we are and what we're living. It's all so unbelievable. And then there's an ancient tradition, a tradition that was hidden and given over in the oral Torah that I want to share with you tonight. It was passed through the Sfat Emet, through his sage and his master, his master before him. And he teaches like this. I'll just say it in English, translated directly. The three regalim, the three biblical feasts, Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot, that are explicitly written in the Torah, are mirrored by three holidays of the oral Torah. And they are illuminations from the three holidays, like the moon receives light from the sun. So he says, first, there are three holidays in the written Torah. But then after that, there are going to be three other holidays that were established after the writing of Moses. He says Hanukkah is not a biblical holiday. It's after the Torah. is a light that's reflected from Sukkot. The eight days of Sukkot reflect into the eight days of Hanukkah. He says Passover, excuse me, Shavuot, where the Jewish people received the Torah, is reflected in Purim. In Purim, they also, it says, Kimuva Kiblu, they all repented, received the Torah, and did Shuva. And then the Sfat Emet says this Passover, we are still waiting for that new holiday to emerge for one more holiday. Like it says, like the days you left the slavery of Egypt, I will show you wonders. 
And now every Jew in the back of their mind that knows this tradition is thinking to themselves, we are celebrating Yom Ha'atzma'ut now, Israel's Independence Day. Like the wonders that God will show us after he took us out of slavery, are we actually establishing the third and final holiday before Mashiach comes? And then someone pointed out to me, not only that, we know that there are 50 days between Passover and Shavuot. And here's something marvelous. If you count the days from Purim, which is on the 14th and 15th day of Adar, and then you count all the way up until 1948, when Israel declared independence, which is on the 5th of ER, you will get 50 days. That wasn't done on purpose. That's just one of the marvels of Jewish history, that we see the same biblical pattern of 50 days between the biblical feasts, have 50 days separating between the oral law, the oral living Torah that's unfolding and revealing itself as we celebrate our holidays. 50 days, one was established in the times of the Bible in the times of Esther. And then 50 days after Purim, we're celebrating Israel's Independence Day that was established on a Friday in 1948. And it just so happens that those two holidays are also 50 days apart. You can't help but just kind of stand and marvel at the mystery of it all. But uh, as we sort of live in these days, and we heard what Tehillah said, it's a process. And in that process, there'll be a lot of confusion. It's like, on one hand, I can feel the confusion. I can feel the the war against us, the, the, the media against us, the internal battles inside us. But then on the other hand, I think about where we've come from. And I think if, if we could only show this gathering right now in this fellowship, if we could show this to the people, the Jewish people who lost hope in Auschwitz and who lost hope in Warsaw, if they could see what I'm seeing right now, that there would be Torah coming out from the mountains of Judea, connecting believers all over the world, that we would be learning together and praying together, that we would be living out this miracle of Israel in the return to the land of Israel together. If they would see the Arugot farm and they would see Jewish children speaking Hebrew, tending to our flock, if they could see us working the land and making the desert blossom before our eyes, if they would have seen what I saw, where I saw Jewish yeshiva students in the old city of Jerusalem coming to celebrate Israel's Independence Day in this beautiful synagogue in the mountains of Judea, what is going on? I mean, if they were to see what we're saying now, they would just think, that's it, we've arrived. And so the prophets, Zechariah and Malachi and Haggai, they composed a prayer that the people of Israel together accepted. Those prophets with the sages of the great assembly created and wrote the Amidah prayer, the 18 blessings. And since then, the Jewish people have prayed those prayers three times a day. And in that prayer toward the end, it says, May our eyes see your return to Zion in mercy. Praying to God that after the destruction of the temple, God, just let our eyes see your return to Zion in mercy. And so for so many years, I always understood that to say like, okay, God, just let us see you return. But what they had in their brilliant minds and in their spirit and in their hearts, when we read it in this generation, we're literally saying, Hashem, give us the eyes to see that what's happening before our eyes is your return to the land of Israel. Just give us the eyes to see it. What we're seeing here is that unbelievable where we were just 70 years ago and where we are today. You can see the Garden of Eden already now when you squint in the distance. We can already see it almost manifesting. And the ancient tradition of Israel teaches us that everything is in God's hands, in heaven's hands, except for the way we see things except for our Yirat Shamayim, except for our vision of heaven. Meaning, more than anything else, your vision of the world, your outlook, your hashkafa, your paradigm, your life philosophy will shape 
the outcome of your life, the happiness in your life, the relationships in your life, more than anything else, how you choose to see the world will affect everything else. And we pray, God, give us the eyes to see it. Because when we choose how to see the world, we want to choose wisely. And when there's a new movement or a new person that says, I have a new truth, <laughs> I am so woke, I have a new awoken truth, they're the enlightened ones. I would look at them like an Ikea factory telling me that they have a sale on antiques. Truths are not new. Truths are eternal. They're old. The law of sowing and reaping, the laws of good and evil. Someone says, come to my factory. I'm making some antiques. Beware of them. Rely on the wisdom of the giants of the past. Look at chapter 16, verse 16 in the book of Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see. Ask the ways of the ancients where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. Here we are. And in this generation, we're told we are going to be up against spiritual forces, confusion, lack of faith, challenges to our faith. We're going to have to really persevere. All of our history has culminated to our generation right now as we've completed the third generation and we're entering into the fourth. Will we rise up or will we take it for, for granted? Will the third and fourth generation just lose it? Abraham told us, Vedor Revi'i Ashuvuhena. Abraham says at the end, the fourth generation is going to come back. And so the redemption is coming, whether we like it or not. And the question is, how are we going to experience it? Are we going to experience it the hard way? Or are we going to walk in the light as we banish the darkness? Every atheist, Every Christian, every Jew, every Muslim, the whole of human consciousness, whether they want to or not, is watching a chosen people who have returned to a promised land and watching and wondering, what's going to happen to those people? I mean, I don't believe in the Bible, but can I do? They are sort of living out all of those promises in the Bible. I'm just going to keep my eye on them because I... We, the whole world knows the Bible and we all know it is the promised land and the chosen people have somehow returned here in this spectacle unseen before. So whether they want to or not, whether they believe it or not, they're all watching us. And now what is going to happen? And so the calling of our generation, all those, it's like calling in the Calvary, all those that feel connected to Israel, all those that attach themselves to the house of Israel. That's what I say is hold the line now. It's like we are at the edge. It's like we're right at the threshold. If you think about where we came from and how close we are, that we can actually see this behind us already now in the mountains of Judea. We are so close, but Jeremiah says the last part is going to be really challenging. We're going to be riddled with doubts, with challenges. And when I say hold the line, what does that mean? That's a military term. It's like the enemy's going to want to cross in right at the end. There's going to be one point in time, one point in geography where this is the territory. Hold the line. It's like in football. You know, you just the team just needs a couple of more meters, a couple of more yards to get into the end zone. It's like hold the line. Don't let the darkness in. Don't let the doubt in. Don't let the cynicism in. They're going to try to put us to sleep. They're going to try to distract us. They're going to try to make us angry and resentful. They want to pierce through our hearts. And I'm saying, hold the line. All believers now need to hold the line and do not let them in. We are the ones that have mysteriously been chosen. We love Israel. We didn't choose to love Israel. We don't know why we love Israel. God has chosen us to by being chosen. <laughs> we chose him, but who gave us that love to choose? Something mysterious is happening and a fire burns in our heart for this land. And like a magnet, it's brought us all together. 
And the story of human history is going to happen through us, the Jewish people in Judea and those who align themselves with Israel and attach themselves to the God of Israel are going to be a marvel and a wonder for the world that breaks through nationalities, that breaks through religion, that breaks through theology. And we're going to teach the world how to reconnect with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob before there was religion, before there was a theology, when there was just a relationship in harmony with existence itself. And here we are now in the mountains of King David. And the spirit of King David is alive through us. That's what it means, David Melech Israel, Chai Vekayam, that he is alive and well because here we are in his mountains and all of us have been gathered here together. And so we may be standing before the greatest challenge that so many generations before us have fallen in, but we have those generations now to know, hold the line, one more mitzvah, one more Torah, one more step toward the light. Be strong and be courageous. Don't lose hope. Hold the line as we inherit the land of Israel. One more step to banish the darkness. We know the dark. We've seen the dark. We can see the dark even today as Amalek veer, like, rears its head up with axes and knives to kill the innocent. Stay away. Go into the light. Walk in the light now more than ever because our generation has the ability to banish the darkness as we pave the way. And so Am Yisrael Chai, the nation of Israel is alive and all of us together are going to bring it and so bless you. We love you. And um, as we march forward, we march forward together, holding the line. And so you should be blessed from Zion and know that from the mountains of King David, a blessing goes out directed directly toward you. How fortunate we all are to be blessed together, to be connected together, and to know that the blessing comes from Zion, from this place that God commanded. Adonai be blessed, my friends. We love you. Shalom. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.